know, any time that you hear the phrase, the ultimate sacrifice, many times we immediately think of that soldier who gives up her or his or her life for their country. And when soldiers pay that price, it is remarkable. Did you know that since the birth of our country, 1.1 million people have given up their life as a soldier for our country? And when I read that statistic this week, I was just so humbled by that. And the remarkable thing is that many of these people actually give up their life for their friends' lives. They're in battle and they stand and they take the bullet or they hold on to the grenade, but they give up their life to save the life of their friends. And to me, like that's a whole other level of sacrifice at that point. I remember in high school going to uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, we went to the Vietnam Veterans War Memorial. It's called The Wall. And if you've ever been there before, you just see this long wall with all of these names that are engraved on it. And it's moving just to stand like right in front of that wall. 58,249 names are ingrained in that black granite on that wall. The names of men and women who made the ultimate sacrifice are ingrained there. And each one of those names represents a life, a story, a family. It represents a shattered dream. And each name brings unimaginable grief for family and friends who go and they stand on that wall in front of it. And if you've ever been there before, there'll be people and they'll touch the name or they'll weave a flower, but it's a very moving thing to just watch people. And you know, when I stand in front of war memorials like that or I'm at a military funeral, I'm often reminded of Jesus' words when he said this, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. This week begins Holy Week. The week that leads to the ultimate sacrifice that the world has ever known of Jesus Christ dying on a cross for the sins, not just of you and I, but the sins of the entire world. And at the end of the celebration, we're going to give you a visual depiction of what that sacrifice actually looked like so that you could see what the sins of the world must have felt like and what He took on for you and for me. And I think it will help us to 
never forget what sacrifice He made for us. Now, before we do that, I want every single person in this gym to get a concept. It's the central idea of Christianity. I mean, this is what distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. And it's something that I hope we all get. It's about someone laying down their life for someone else. Now, it's a big theological word, and this is what it is, but the central concept is called substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Now, I realize some of you right now, you're looking at that word or you're seeing all of those letters and you're like, I'm done. I'm not going to put that down even on my paper. I can't even write that many letters, you know. And I remember the first time I ever got this theological concept and I, I was ready to quit. I'm like, my head is not going to be able to wrap itself around it. I mean, I can't even get this. And some of you might be thinking right now, you know, I'm just going to check out because this sounds like something way over my head. And I want to encourage you, don't check out. Because I'm going to do my best to explain this to you in such a way that when you leave from this place, you'll go, you know what, I'm so glad that I got this. Now let's kind of break this word up so it's easier for us to get Let's look at the second, first word, the second word first, and that is the word atonement. Atonement. What does the word atonement mean? How many of you have ever got a speeding ticket before? Raise your hand. Okay, put your hand down. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, you're liars. Okay? We know. Okay, we know. Now, I, like many of you, have uh, got one or two or five or 20 speeding tickets in my life. I'll let you decide which number. That probably is true. And when you get a speeding ticket and you're declared guilty, you have to go to traffic court. And then the judge tells you what you have to do to atone for your traffic violation. You will have to make a payment to satisfy the demands of the traffic justice system, which translated means you're going to pay about 100 to 150 bucks, okay, to make everything all right. And if you're really, really, really bad at doing this over time, you have to take defensive driving school, like Derek has many, many times before. But if you pay your fine, if you go to the classes, the judge tells you, you will have, in fact, you will have atoned for your traffic sins. You will have satisfied the demands of justice. You will have atoned. And then you can go about your business. So, atonement simply means this. To satisfy 
the demands of judgment. To satisfy the demands of justice. It means that basically a crime has been committed and it's been paid in full. It's been atoned for. Now the second word is the word substitute or substitutionary. Now we all have a pretty good idea of uh, this word. When you were in elementary school and your regular teacher got sick, the school would think of another person to send to your class. They would assign them, and we called that person what? The substitute. The substitute teacher. And I know all of you were so kind and loving for that person. But the school would assign them, and the substitute teacher would like take the place of the regular teacher. Now, some of you probably need to atone for the way you've treated your substitute teachers. And God knows who that is. But we understand this idea of substitution, that someone stands in the place of someone else. Someone who stands in the place of someone else. So if you put those two words together, substitute and atonement, substitutionary atonement. And in the next few minutes, I'm going to explain this to you in such a way that you'll get the idea, not just of this word, but at the central core of Christianity. This is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. That Jesus paid for the fines that you racked up in your life and He voluntarily, no one forced Him, He voluntarily left heaven, came to earth, and He substituted Himself for you and for I and for myself. He was the substitute that atoned for us. Now, soldiers who die for their buddies substitute themselves for them. But they never atone for the wrongs of their buddies. Do you guys get the difference? A soldier will substitute themselves if they die for the betterment of their friends, but they don't atone. They don't pay for the penalty, the price, of all the wrongs that that person did. And... My goal is that light bulbs will start coming off all over this gym by the time that we're done, and you'll be like, I got it. I've never got it before, but I got it this time. And for some of you, I pray that you would get it so much that you would actually today, this day, April Fool's Day, not be a fool But say, I got it, and I want Jesus Christ to be my substitutionary atoner. I want Him to be central in my life. So let's kind of drill down as deep as we can to try to understand this big concept where there have been many books written on by looking at some key passages in Scripture. Let's go back all the way to the beginning to... Uh, the two people that were in the garden, Adam and Eve. 
And God comes to Adam and Eve, and this is what he says to them. He says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. God says, I have my reasons. You can eat anything that you want in this garden, but you can't eat from this one tree. For when you eat it, you will surely what? What's it say? Die. He says, this isn't a misdemeanor. This isn't a little traffic violation. This isn't even a felony. But this is a capital offense. And I have my reasons for it, God says. So the story goes like this. Adam and Eve hear this, and then they go about their day and week and maybe months, maybe even years, we're not really sure, but they're going about it, and everything's going really good. And then all of a sudden, they get this big temptation. A moment of temptation comes, and they fall, and they eat the fruit. And the minute that they do that, they are struck with shame and guilt. They have intense regret over what they've done, so much so that the Scripture tells us that they hide from God. They try to hide away from Him. Because they know what they did was wrong. Then God comes and He visits them in the middle of their shame, and Adam and Eve are expecting the death penalty. They deserve it. He told them exactly what the rule was, and they broke the rule. He told them it's a capital offense. You're going to die. So God comes up to them and he says, hey, did you guys eat the fruit? And to their credit, they admitted it. I mean, first Adam's like, the woman did it. It wasn't my fault. It was the woman. The woman's like, no, 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 no. I didn't put that in your mouth. You did it. And they're like bickering back and forth, and God's like, okay, I don't care who did what, okay? You're both guilty. And he does something that like blows their mind. He grabs hold of an animal in the garden, an innocent animal that had never done anything before, and he kills it. And he skins the animal, and the Bible says this, The Lord God made garments out of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. He clothed them with the skin of an animal that he killed, and in doing so, he clothed their shame, their nakedness. You know, I'd never seen this verse in Scripture. I just kind of read it before. You know, oh, okay, they're naked, so they had... Well, how did that happen? Well, there's only three people that are in the garden. And it's interesting. This whole idea, folks, of substitutionary atonement didn't just happen when Jesus died on the cross. It had its beginnings all the way in the garden. I mean, an innocent animal dies to cover the shame, and the guilt of Adam and Eve. Another thing kind of struck me this week, there's no indication when you read the Bible that death had ever happened before. We don't know how long it had been. Maybe it had been millions of years. I don't know. 
But there had never been death before. And all of a sudden, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, and they hear this animal being killed. It must have been terrifying. It must have been horrifying. I mean, to just hear an animal die, it's so gruesome. I remember a kid, in my, when I was growing up as a kid, we had a, a, a cat. And the cat got hit by a car. And I was just thinking about this week. I still have a vivid image in my mind. I bet it was only five or six years old. I still have the image of when that cat died and walking up and seeing the cat. And here's an animal, an innocent animal, so that its skin can be used to cover up the shame of Adam and Eve. And theologians kind of believe that this was the sneak preview for what substitutionary atonement actually would look like. Now let's roll the clock ahead a little bit further, and uh, let's go to uh, the story of uh, the Israelites who had been enslaved by the Egyptians. Just a little trivia here. How many years had the Israelites been enslaved by the Egyptians? Anyone want to take a guess? Someone said a lot. (laughs) 430 years. 430 years. You know how old our country is? Some of you are like, okay, change. I'll help you out. Okay, 235 years. So if you think our country, like, is really old, just think about ever since our country began, we've been enslaved. And then add another couple hundred years, and you finally get to what these people had experienced. Generation after generation, century after century, enslaved. They were oppressed. They were treated like trash. And finally, God had had enough of it, and he comes, and he comes to their rescue, and he arranges these ten plagues that he's going to send to Egypt. And he gets to the tenth plague, and the tenth plague was he was going to send an angel of death from heaven to visit every single household in Egypt as a discipline from God for all the disobedience that had happened in the land. Every single household, Israelites and Egyptians. But since the Israelites were God's people, he said, you know what? I'm going to give you an out. And this was the out. It says, he tells them, On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and I will kill all the firstborn sons and the firstborn male animals in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But if you smear blood on your door, the blood you have smeared on your doorpost will serve as a sign When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Some of you may have heard of Jewish people celebrate what's called the Passover. And this is where it got its beginning from. That God said, I will pass over any house that has blood at the top of the doorpost, whoever it is. And for thousands and thousands of years, Jewish people have celebrated this, and many of them still do today. They'll celebrate. 
Now, I was just thinking about it this week. Let's just take this idea a little bit further, that this angel of death has been sent, and there's a dad who's an Israelite, and he kind of knows this, and so he gets his 15-year-old son, who's the oldest son in his household, and he says, hey, come on, let's go out to the field. I want to look at the herd. And the boy goes out with him, and he's like, Dad, why are we out here looking at the herd? He says, well, I want to find the best lamb. And he's like, oh, okay, Dad, no problem. And he looks around, and he finds the best lamb, and he says, Dad, here's the best lamb. And he says, what are we going to do with it? He says, we're going to kill it. And the boy's like, but Dad, this is our best lamb. Why would we kill this? I mean, it's our best lamb. The lamb didn't do anything to deserve this. Why are we doing this, Dad? And the dad says, well, it's either the lamb or you. I mean, the arrangement by God was this, that he was going to pass over all of these that had blood. But how were they going to get the blood? Well, they had to kill an animal. They had to kill a lamb. And can you imagine that 15-year-old kid? He's like, man, I really like this lamb. But if it's the lamb or me, take the lamb. Take the lamb. Here again, we get this idea, folks, of a third party atoning for the sins and disobedience of someone else while the other person goes free. He's the substitutionary atoner. And it happened just as God predicted. The angel of death came and he killed all of the firstborn children. And he passes over all of the houses that have blood at the top of the door frames. And there's so much death that happened on that day in Egypt that the Egyptians were like, get out of here. We don't want you in our land. You're free to go. 430 years, but get out! And they go to the promised land. But do you see how that day would be so important? And if you were enslaved that long, you would always remember that day because it was on that day that a lamb was slain. And they and their kids were set free. Okay, fast forward a little bit further in the redemptive history. And uh, redemptive just means God pays for something. And uh, there's a sacrificial system that's put into the Old Testament. And in that day, if someone committed a sin, a heinous sin of some kind, they were to take an animal to the high priest, and the high priest would kill the animal on the altar, and then that person's sin would be forgiven, and they would be able to go. The judgment of God would not fall on that person. It would fall on that animal. And the priest would then go and he would declare them not guilty. And they were set free if they had a repentful heart and they had the right animal offered. Because of the substitutionary atonement of that lamb, they were set free. Now go a little bit further, so there's this whole sacrificial system of these animals that they get killed so that people's sins are forgiven and they finally come up with a concept called the Day 
of atonement. It was only one day a year. No more. Just one day a year. And it happened that everyone would come to this celebration. And when they came, the high priest would stand up in front of thousands and thousands of people. And he would have two goats beside him. And they would take one of the goats, representing the sins, and they would have the sacrifice, because they had to have a sin sacrifice, and they would kill the goat right up on the altar. And uh, the way that this was decided was the, the high priest would like cast lots, which is basically like rolling dice. So he'd roll dice, and one sheep had one thing that happened to him, and the other one was killed immediately right on the altar. And the blood represented the sin sacrifice for all the people. That was the substitutionary atoner for the people's sins. And it just kind of, God had said, hey, this is the way things are going to happen. And they would just obey and they would follow that on this day of atonement. Now, what do you do with this other goat? Well, this other goat became what is called the scapegoat. And what would happen is the high priest would take this goat and he would put his hands on the lamb's head and then all of the sins that had been committed over the last year, they would place those sins on this goat. And it would take hours and hours and hours. I mean, there's enough sin just in this gym, you know. It'd take a couple hours. But now you take thousands of people and, you, and they'd have to do it in categories. And so they'd take this goat and the priest would put his hands on it and he would just say, for all of the thefts that have been committed in the last 12 months, every time somebody stole something, we put all those sins on this goat. And then he'd say, for all of the lying, all of the exaggeration, all of that we put on the head of this goat. For all of the loose words, all the times that you hurt someone's feelings, deliberately we put those sins on this goat. For all the murders in the last year, for all the adulteries in the last year, we put on this goat. And he'd finally stand before the crowd and he'd say, okay, is there anything that I forgot? And if people had sinned, they'd say, hey, this. And he'd say, well, we put this on that goat. And this, and this, and this. And everything would be placed upon this goat. And then a big, strong young man would come up and he would take the goat. And he would carry him for ten miles into the wilderness. And when he got out into the wilderness, he would just let the goat go. To wander away and eventually die. And the whole idea was that that goat would would be cast away. All those sins on that goat would be gone. That God wanted His people to see that the goat was killed and all their sins had escaped and was no longer in the community. It showed the sins were gone. 
And what would happen is this guy would then, they said 10 miles typically, he would walk back and everyone would stay until he walked in. And then when he would walk in, and there were all of these thousands of people all from Israel, he'd walk in and he'd say, your sins are gone. Your sins are gone. It's like the goat has left the building and people would be celebrating. They'd be like, yes, all right, I'm free. Now, it costs two goats their lives, though. But the guilt of the people had been atoned for. So from the Garden of Eden to the Passover, to the sacrificial system, to the Day of Atonement, all of these simply foreshadowed something that was coming. And there was a guy, a prophet by the name of Isaiah, who said, You know, there's going to come a day in which it's not going to be an animal anymore, but it's actually going to be a human sacrifice, a human substitutionary atoner. There'll be no more animals. And people were like, no way! I mean, it's one thing for it to be a goat or a lamb, but for it to be a human being, no way! I mean, it's bad enough that a lamb or... A goat would have to give up their life, but a a person? No, no. Now go with me further into the New Testament. When John the Baptist, who was the prophet who was told to give the direction for people to know that the Messiah was coming, that Jesus was coming, go back to him, and the Scripture tells us that one day he was standing in a crowd, and all of a sudden he looks down and he sees... Jesus coming, and the Scripture says, this is what He said. He said, Behold, there is the Lamb of God, the Lamb who takes the sins of the world away. Now, when you and I read that, that has no meaning whatsoever, too much. But if you were a Jewish person on that day, and there was a Lamb, and He said, No, 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 I'm not talking about a little Lamb, I'm not talking about a goat, but there He is. And it blew people's minds. Now let's roll the clock ahead a little bit further to that very first Good Friday where Jesus is on the cross and He's on the cross and He's dying and He says His last words. These are the words He said. He said, it is finished. Then He bowed His head and He died. Now, what does that mean? It is finished. Maybe you've read that before. When you first read it, the first time you think, well, it is finished. His life's done, right? It's finished. I'm no longer here. My suffering is finished. But folks, that's not what this means. You know what this really is saying? Is that all of the dying, all of the animal sacrifices, all of the day of atonements, the sacrificial system, every single time since the Garden of Eden that something had to die... It no longer has to be that way. I am going to be the ultimate sacrifice. There will be no more animal offerings. Don't worry about killing animals anymore, any day forward, because I'm going to satisfy the demands of justice that have been sent from heaven. All of the weight of the sin of the world will come down as an ultimate sacrifice on Jesus Christ. Everything. 
And he said, it's finished. And he died. Now roll the clock ahead to the day that the earth will no longer exist. And there will be a judgment day. And the scriptures are very clear, folks, that this day is coming. And on that day, every single one of us, including myself, we will stand before a holy God. All of us, no exceptions. Every single person. And many of us believe that the question that's going to be asked is, well, how good were you? What were the good things that you did? And what were the bad things you did? And then God will kind of have this ledger, and if your good things outweigh your bad things, then he says, oh, come on in. You're a good person. But folks, that's not going to be the conversation. Not at all. In fact, when you stand before a holy God on your final day, He's not going to ask, how many sins have you racked up? Why doesn't He need to ask that? He already knows. He's not going to ask you that. There's no ledger because the reality is God already knows all that stuff. But the question that He's going to be asked before a holy God on your final day is this. Who is going to atone for your sin? It's the only question. It's the only issue that's there. Who is going to atone for your sin? Because someone has to satisfy the demands of judgment. Sin has to be paid for. So who's going to atone for your sin? And on that judgment day, folks, there are only two options that are going to be there. Only two. The first is what is called self-atoning, or I'm going to self-atone. You can take the full hit. You can pay the price of your sins. And if you choose to do that, what the penalty is for you taking that is that you will be separated from God. You will be placed in hell forever. Let me be very clear. You have the option of self-atoning. There's a lot of people that do. I've buried people who have self-atoned. The self-atoning plan is saying right now, I don't need Jesus Christ. I don't need Him in my life. I'll do the church thing. I'll do all that. I'll satisfy that. But I really don't need Him to atone for me. And you'll regret that day for the rest of your life for eternity. But that option's there. Anybody that wants to self-atone, you can do it. There's only one other option, folks, and it's on the final day, and it's this. To ask Jesus Christ to be your self-atoner or your substitutionary atoner. You say, I don't want the self-atoning thing. I want the substitutionary thing. I want Him. Now, I'm going to say something right now that is not politically correct. I know that. And I'm trying to be as sensitive as I can. But it's the truth. There are no other atoners, folks, in the history of the world. There's never been one. In fact, all the would-bes who wanted to claim something, they never claimed that their death was a self-atoning death. So anyone who calls on Muhammad or Buddha, or Confucius, or anybody else, folks, they're out of luck. 
Because no one ever died in the history of the world as an atoning death. Only Jesus Christ, on Good Friday, took on the sins of the world. Your sins, my sins, our kids' sins, our grandkids' sins. He says, I take it all on. And I paid the price and it's finished. Once and for all. It took me, folks, until I was 26, until I finally got this concept. I've been in church my whole life. My dad's a pastor. I had heard thousands of you know, teachings. I had actually been pastoring myself for three years. And on one day in northern Indiana, at 26 years of age, I got the concept of what it meant of substitutionary atonement that Jesus actually took my place. And it knocked the wind out of me that day. That because of His amazing love for someone as messed up and screwed up and how many times I've fled up, because of His amazing love for me, He took my penalty. He took the take for me. He took my head so that a guilty person could be set free. And then in that moment, I remember saying, Jesus, that's what I want. I don't want to self-atone. I'll never do enough good things in my life. I know that. I need you in my life. I don't want to self-atone. I need a substitutionary atoner. I know He loves me. And I know that He will take the hit for me. So here's what's going to happen with me. One day, I will stand before a holy God. And He'll ask me a simple question. He'll ask me, How do you want this atonement thing to work, Chris Bunch? And I'll say, I don't want to atone. In fact... I've already chosen, I've already asked Jesus Christ to be my substitutionary atoner. I want His plan for my life, not mine. And Scripture tells me that what God will do in that moment is He will say, Welcome in, Chris. Because of what my Son did for you, you are welcome. He substitutionarily atoned for you. And folks, that's the only way people ever get into heaven. Now this is how we're going to close. We're going to show a video here of what Jesus did for you as a substitutionary atonement act. And after that clip, I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to give any of you an opportunity that will dismiss everybody so you don't have to be put on the spot. But you can have the, the, the opportunity today to say, you know what? Today's the day. I don't want to self-atone anymore. I'm ready to give my one and only life to Christ. And I'll stand here and I'll pray with you. And we'll Chuck Mock will come up here and do that as well. But what I want you to do right now, folks... It wasn't an animal. It was God's only Son 
who substitutionarily atoned for you. Let's take a look at the clip. 